Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Hello and welcome back to the Prospect Podcast, where we speak to the brightest minds and talk about the ideas that matter in politics, arts and society. I'm Alan Rusbridger. I'm the editor of Prospect Magazine. And today I am delighted to be joined by two uh, fascinating guests, Guardian columnist Raphael Baer and the Russia correspondent for The Washington Post, Francesca Ebel. Uh, we're recording on uh, Wednesday, the 11th of January, which is the 321st day of Putin's invasion of Ukraine. Uh, and in this episode, we're going to be discussing how Russians, both at home and abroad, are responding to what Raphael described in a fantastic piece in the current prospect uh, as the, quote, submission of their country's, quote, identity to the fascistic cult of Putin. It's a, it's a fantastic essay. It's called Home is Where the Hatred Is, uh, and it's in the uh, edition which is now on sale. So let's start, Raphael. Um, tell us about what you describe as the brutal crackdown on political liberties in Russia. What is life for your contacts who were previously part of the domestic opposition? Uh, well, the, the important distinction to draw really is between the, the sort of long, slow, grinding a corrosion of political liberties uh, and the very idea that Russia could be a liberal democratic state uh, over the sort of decades that, that Vladimir Putin has been in charge. And then a, a, a very abrupt shift towards what certainly my friends in Moscow and St. Petersburg describe openly as a totalitarian culture um, uh, sh very shortly after the invasion. Uh, and uh, that uh, seems to have taken quite a few people by surprise. I mean, th there's a legislative component to it, obviously, um, which is the, the, the very draconian laws were passed. Uh, the sort of emblematic feature of that was uh, that the, it became, uh, it was essentially illegal to describe the war as a war. You had to refer to it as the special military operation. Uh, yeah, the, there were severe uh, uh, jail terms uh, uh, possible for impugning the honor of the Russian armed forces, which essentially means describing the reality of what is happening uh, in Ukraine. Uh, and the presentation, again, accelerating something that had been happening for years, but uh, uh, applied with much more vigor uh, of anyone who criticized the regime as essentially uh, an agent of a foreign power. Um, and this was accompanied by a very significant ramping up of a, a kind of 
a culture of uh, ultra patriotism. There was this the symbol, the letter Z being paraded around, a sense that, um, uh, I mean, really, you know, we we can overuse the sort of comparisons to the Third Reich and fascism, and there's a sense in the uh, often that, that you sort of you've lost the argument once you start banding that comparison around. But but really, it was unmistakable that the imagery, the styling of it, it, it was a totalitarian statement. So to finish the point, you know, my friends who had been in a state of general despondency about what was going on in Russia, but had found an accommodation to it, faced the choice of of either leaving or or living in in what they describe as, you know, internal exile, absolute withdrawal from any kind of public engagement at all and despair. Francesca, you're you're currently in London, yeah. um, which tells a story in, in, in itself. Can can you talk a bit about um, when you were last there and, and how you experienced this change in mood that Raphael's um, been talking about? Uh, well, I haven't actually been in Russia since the invasion. Um, I was covering uh, stuff from from Ukraine, but um, I've definitely, with the people that I've spoken to um, since, and and my former contacts and, and, and friends that are still there. I've definitely observed a similar a similar um, sort of phenomenon. This internal emigration that Raphael mentioned is growing stronger, I think, every month um, as things get worse and worse. Uh, I mean, I just spoke with um, several friends in, in the Urals actually uh, l- last week, and they were saying how s- sort of as time goes on, they are struggling more and more to have normal conversations. I mean, there's, there are certain topics that you just don't talk about. There are, um, everything kind of feels like a tripwire and the people that you felt that you could talk with in a relaxed way, a sort of, you know, friends and talking about sport or whatever, everything feels like it, 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 there's a lot of tension around certain subjects and they're sort of drawing more and more into themselves. Um, and I think that's, that, that's definitely going to get stronger as, um, time goes by. The one thing I would add to that, um, it, well, two things actually. One is that uh, for a certain generation, there is an awful familiarity about this, that there was a way of having encoded conversations that people who are old enough to remember the Soviet era knew and could slip into speaking in metaphors and similes in, and jokes in a way that sort of everyone knew what was really being said, but you wouldn't articulate it explicitly. Uh, and the other thing is... At some level, and I see this a little bit more in the younger generation, which is really the children of my friends, um, actually a movement in the opposite direction, a kind of almost reckless abandon that they just don't care. And they, they will go to demonstrations or they will risk arrest. Uh, and you know, when I speak to people and say, look, do you have to be a bit careful about what you say? Do you feel safe? They will say, I don't care anymore. The moment that has passed, you know, they would almost rather martyr themselves uh, against this new draconian order than try and accommodate to it. But, but I mean, obviously, that's a tiny minority of people who are experiencing that, but it's definitely something that I've detected. Your, your piece, Raphael, focuses on the, on the Russians who have chosen exile and who are living in this country with the, um, the atmosphere that you've described. And you, the story of Grigory Svold, um, tell us a bit about him. Well, uh, he was running a homeless charity in St. Petersburg, also working in Moscow, which sort of evolved uh, similarly to the, the sort of the big issue here in the UK. It was that type of operation, um, but essentially uh, expanded to be this sort of general provider of, of uh, humanitarian aid to 
uh, the city's homeless and became a sort of a figure in civil society, certainly in St. Petersburg, was relatively outspoken about the government. And then um, so was essentially sort of part of what you might think of as the liberal-minded middle-class bit of Russian society that was tolerated as long as they weren't overly political uh, and doing good works and was given to understand very early on uh, after the invasion, we're talking sort of in days, that as someone who, who wouldn't shut up about his criticism of the government, um, that he was essentially a marked man. Uh, and as he put it to me, you know, he, he didn't know exactly how how accurate that was or what the percentage chance was of him actually being picked up or jailed. But it was happening to enough people uh, that he took the decision uh, to leave the country, uh, which he did, you know, yeah, on the spur of the moment. He really just threw his stuff into a car uh, and... Uh, drove to the Estonian border at a time when getting over the Estonian border was easier than it is now. Uh, uh, and is now like hundreds of thousands of Russians in Georgia. Um, and, and it's interesting because, you know, he and others have said the same thing, that describe different sorts of waves of that emigration. So his was, you know, slightly forced, but also explicitly political. You then have to remember that later in the year, I think in sort of early September, there was the announcement of the mass mobilization or conscription, essentially, of arbitrary numbers of young Russian men. And a lot of people there wanted to leave, not necessarily because they had great ideological objections to the Putin regime, but because they didn't want to get killed um, and be sort of cannon fodder for Putin's army. So... You know, uh, Grigory is a sort of that that sort of first wave dissident emigration, uh, but there are there are all sorts of other components to it as well. Francesca, what, what's the scale of emigration? I mean, how, how, do we have a clear sense of the numbers of people we have fled? Um, the statistics are actually it, it's hard to have a specific number, but it's certainly in the hundreds of thousands. Um, and the other thing is that. The, the, as Raphael said, there are these waves, um, and then there are these sort of stopping points. So people will sometimes go to Kazakhstan and then on to Georgia and then Armenia or even Thailand, the US. So it, it's a little bit difficult to track, um, the numbers and where everyone's going. And it's very much still, still in flux. People, lots of people just haven't settled and lots of people are still potentially considering that they might go back. So it kind of, there's, there's a whole range of experiences in that. And there's likely to be an, another wave if, as predicted, there's another wave of conscription. Yeah, that that there are rumours that there that Moscow is um, preparing to potentially mobilise five hundred thousand this month. Um, we'll have to wait and see, but that certainly will cause another huge wave. The other thing that I think we should mention is a lot of this is to do with people's um, opposition to the war, um, but it also uh, the impact of sanctions. So there is, there's a certain, the significant part of that, that people realize that they can't live in Russia anymore because their businesses have been impacted and they, or, or their, the tech industry has been sort of impacted to the point that they have to leave. So there is opposition to the war and, and there is this fear of, of dying on the front lines, as Raphael said, but it's also a lot of it's economic based as well. And these things are interwoven, aren't they? So, I mean, one of the, 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 
I don't know to what extent this was premeditated on Putin's part. I mean, who knows what goes on in his mind, but an effect of the decision to invade Ukraine has been a really quite epoch-defining abandonment of the idea that Russia can be a European country. I mean, for hundreds of years, essentially, there was this tension in Russian identity, which is it's a sort of, it's a European country, it's also an Asian country, uh, it's a European power, but it never really sits that comfortably with the rest of Europe, but it can't accommodate itself. You know, there, were all the, there was the sort of the Slavophile tendency. There was Peter the Great who opened, the, you know, essentially founded St. Petersburg to be a window onto Europe. Now, and Putin just sort of slammed that window shut. And that is no longer really part of his idea of what Russia is. And so for that younger generation, if you're working in IT or you're a 20-something young professional, not only are sanctions essentially possibly limiting your economic prospects, but the idea of what you might do for a living or who you might even be, not in a political sense, but just as an actor in a globalized world, Russia's not your home anymore. It can't be economically or politically. And that, so that, I think, those things are really intimately connected. It, it's also the end, I think, of this social contract that existed for, for a very long time under Putin, which was that if you live in these prosperous towns, Moscow, St. Petersburg, larger towns as well, um, you will have a certain standard of living and access to certain services as long as you don't criticise the government. And that, I think, is one of the key things that has changed since the invasion. Um, and we'll have to look how that will develop going forward. It's become, you've, you've hinted, Raphael, that it's becoming harder to flee now. Yes, I mean, the, there was, there've been rumours of, of sort of closing the borders. That hasn't happened. And actually, I think probably because there's a certain understanding that actually it's a bit of a safety valve for the Kremlin regime if the people who hate it that much leave. You know, it's actually, it's not necessarily a bad thing for Putin to uh, to just sort of shovel discontent out of the country for two reasons. One, they're not in the country. They're not demonstrating. Uh, you know, they're causing less grief. But also it reinforces the sense that, you know, if you don't back the the president and the war, you're not really a patriot and you are possibly even an agent of foreign powers. And this goes back a long way. I mean, ultimately, you know, there was a lot of emigration in the Soviet period, but that wasn't really influential except in a sort of slow burn cultural way uh, on Soviet politics. Once you were out, you were out. And and something, someone I spoke to uh, for the piece in Prospect, I don't think I ended up quoting it in the piece itself, but made a very good point, which is that, you know, if you look, you know, historically at the, the sort of influential dissident figures, you're better off, as it were, sort of going to jail in Russia, being a dissident inside and, and sort of martyring yourself. You'll get more respect from Russians for sort of doing time in the gulag uh, than you will from sitting in Paris and complaining about Russia from the outside. Uh, and ultimately, there is a, a, a kind of a debilitation of, of exiles because they have to choose between sort of keeping in aspect an idea of a country that they've essentially lost and no longer are able to influence or assimilating into a new environment and becoming less Russian. And, and Putin knows that. Well, Jessica, I know measuring um, public opinion in, in Russia is not easy, but, but what, what's your sense of how much support for Putin there is amongst the population and whether it's significantly wavering now? Um, it's definitely... De 
increasing in the last few months, especially since what was a deeply unpopular um, mobilization drive. Um, as you said, it's very difficult with opinion polls to measure this because especially since um, the invasion and a whole host of new legislation, which you know people could risk 10 to 15 years in prison for what's what they've dubbed um, sort of false information about the the military and and so so a lot of these answers on the on the poll people are saying oh no I don't want to touch this subject I don't want to answer and I'm often providing sort of um, robotic answers. Um, however, even independent polls are showing that it's well above fifty percent of support. And um, but within that, I mean, there's this silent majority that we have to to consider and i see that a lot with my friends and my contacts across russia um people that are not willing to say anything or, or go out in protest but are very unhappy about this war so the chances of getting back in are 50 50 less than 50 50 it's very difficult to tell okay. it, it feels very unlikely but you you just never know yeah. Yeah, so if if you're if you're stuck there you oppose the war you can't leave or you've chosen not to leave um, how are people who fall into that category coping? Well, Raphael mentioned in his piece something that I thought was very interesting. I think it was a uh, political analyst that he spoke to was this idea of psychological asylum. Um, and I, I think there's one tactic which is not engaging at all. There's also this willful ignorance, this kind of mind trick way of coping where you kind of except at least at face value, the sort of official narrative that Russia is um, helping, you know, saving Ukrainians from neo-Nazis and, and fighting fascism, because that's easier than accepting the truth, which is that Russians are committing war crimes against um, people that they used to kind of share this quote-unquote brotherly nation with. There's one girl in particular I know that her way of coping is every day she will put up in the stairwell of her building these little... Sort of, they're not even anti-war messages, but they're, they're messages of hope and encouraging sort of, I guess, freedom of thought. And she puts these anonymous messages up every single day since the invasion in her stairwell. Um, at the beginning, they were saying more explicitly anti-war messages and asking for peace. But now I think she's, as time has gone on, she's just asking people to to pay attention and, and to be kind to each other. Um, and that's her way of, of coping. Um, but... I think increasingly, you know, um, people are really struggling with with the reality of, of what this invasion means for Russia and Russians. What's your answer to that, Raphael? And we've talked about the, the the people who are in exile, but but the the people who have decided or can't leave. Um, do you have a similar sense of? Yeah, I I think it is very generational. I mean, certainly the the my friends. I'm pushing fifty, and and all my friends are the same sort of age. And for them, there is this this almost terrible fatalistic sense that they've been in this movie before. They remember the Soviet period, and they they can cope. Uh, they don't like it, um, and it's miserable. Uh, certainly, they are incredibly grateful for the contacts that they have, you know, with me and others. That that sense of of sort of don't forget that that we are Russia too, or at least, or don't forget that there is this thing, you know, there are these people who who don't go along with what's going on. Whereas their children, um, I think, are are, are processing it very differently, uh, and 
Yeah, there are there are two elements to that. I mean, one you have to remember that's a generation who've never known anything other than Putin. Um, and so rather than seeing it as a, a sort of a horrible turning back of the clock, there's something. And I think it's similar in terms of, and I'm no expert on this, but what I've read in relation to what's been happening in Iran, actually, it's a much more visceral sense of, can we just have a normal life like other people our age in other countries? Of just a much more, and that's much more dangerous to Putin, ultimately, I think, that sense that, you know, you, you can't keep a lid on this forever because... You know, twenty somethings. Yeah, that's a that's such a a, a a resource of energy that it, you know, if it if it even if it doesn't express itself in party politics or institutional politics, it, it's going to come out somewhere. Can you just tell us, um, Francesca? You try and answer this first. But what did people know? I, I we we know the state media is is it's very tightly controlled, but but and. I suppose we're talking about middle-class Russians, but um, have they got a fairly sophisticated idea of the truth of what's going on, or are they pretty limited? Um, again, I think this is generational and um, often relies on people's uh, use of technology um, because one of the main sources of information that people now rely on across the political spectrum, right, is is Telegram um, because it, it's used at all levels. It's used by pro-Russian war bloggers, it's used by uh, government officials, it's used by um, anti-Putin activists, it's used by feminist groups, LGBT groups, you know, the whole the whole spectrum. And it's totally free. And the amount of information that is coming through every single day is enormous. So if you're in touch with those channels and you're, and you're following um, developments across that, you will know what is going on. Um, the, the issue is, is that a lot of Russians inside Russia are um, primarily consuming state TV and, and state sources, which do have a very fixed, increasingly hysterical narrative about um, what is going on. Um, um, so, but yeah, I, I think Raphael said in, in his piece is that it's also at a certain point a choice because they are perfectly able to go on the internet and, and search for for sources that aren't state media, so a lot of a lot of it's to do with choice. A lot of it is this potentially unwillingness to not know the full truth, the the full situation. Um, I would add to that. I mean, certainly the statistics that, as far as we uh, can rely on them, show that Russia has become the world's center of VPNs, you know, virtual private networks. That so there are a lot of people who are finding ways to access the internet, but um, you know, part of the way. The, the sort of Kremlinological information manipulation machine works. It's not necessarily, and this applies also, by the way, to meddling in you know our politics, American politics, European politics. It's not about sort of spreading fake news with a view to telling people things that that, that are false and hoping they'll believe them. It's about polluting the whole information space so thoroughly, just contaminating everything that people think, well, you'll never know the truth. There is no truth. Don't even bother. And so people will, they might have access to a, a, a version of what's happening in Ukraine that isn't the official one, but they might also think, yeah, but well, that's the Ukrainian version and that's going to be as skewed their way as our news is skewed our way. Or, well, NATO has its you know, intentions and the rate things a particular way. So our guys are lying to us, but their guys are lying to them and everyone's lying. And so there's no truth. So what's the point? And that, as long as 
they, that, those sort of, that attitude prevails in these, the sort of, there's a sense that different propagandists are cancelling each other out. Just having access to what's really happening in your brain isn't sufficient. You can't be morally relativistic. You have to take the view, my guys are the bad guys and their lies are toxic and the other stuff is at least closer to the truth. Final question for, for both of you. Um, Francesca, why don't you go first? So what does the future look like both for Russians in exile uh, and at home? Uh, how are they going to solve these problems of grappling with their identity uh, in the years to come? It's a very open question because I think still we, we have to wait a little bit for things to, to settle or even start settling. It's almost a year since the, the war started and, and lots of people fled. So that, a lot of it is still in flux and, and people aren't able to plan long term. Um, however, internally, the situation in Russia is worsening economically, socially. Um, even if you look at things, for example, infrastructure, um, it, it's always been a huge issue in Russia. But that as sanctions start to hit, there's more and more gas explosions, more and more um, explosions of, of pipelines and, 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 and this kind of thing. Um, and I think that as that starts to get worse, uh, you know, the ingredients for destabilization will will get more and more, um, and the probability of future protests will will likely increase. Um, but it you know it, it's not just one thing happening; it's a collection of things have to happen at once. Um, and I mean, we're already seeing these sort of flashpoint uh, during the mobilization drive. People were uh, shooting draft officers and and setting fire to to draft centers. Um, and I think these kind of instances will start to increase, especially if we see see another uh, mobilization drive. Um, and outside, I think there's different mentalities of emigration. There's people that are potentially waiting for an opportunity to return. There's people who have already said, OK, Russia's over for me. I'm going to move on and are starting to apply for their EU residencies or green cards or whatever. Uh, and then there's people who are sort of in this kind of purgatory between the two that just don't really know how to make decisions. There is this big open question about whether this kind of alternative Russia will start to 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 formulate. I don't see very many signs of any activism uh, sort of building outside of Russia, but perhaps we'll see that as in the next year or two, maybe. It, it's, it's quite a long process because there's so many things that are happening and, and people are still very traumatized and shocked by February still. I'm also not not hugely optimistic that the immigration has a sort of significant political blowback effect on Russian politics. Uh, I, I, mainly, I think, actually, for this, you know, and there's always a danger of being overly sort of mystic about Russian culture, but uh, which I try to resist. But that sense of of, of the it, the potency of of rootedness and the idea of being connected to the motherland is is so strong. That once you've left, I, I think you, you you sever that very quickly. I mean, you know, you just again using the Soviet example. I mean, you know, Nabokov you know, made a great contribution to to Western literature, but he stopped more or less being a Russian writer uh, in exile. Uh, you know, uh, and and that's true but actually of other exiles as well. I mean, you know, Thomas Mann was very important during the war, but he wasn't didn't actually play a strong part in the reconstruction of, of Germany uh, after the war. You know, uh, so I don't. I think there will be all sorts of fascinating and possibly wonderful cultural things that come out of this export of some of Russia's brightest, you know, most conscientious people. I don't think they're going to change Russian politics that much. Uh, internally, 
yeah, I, obviously it, it depends on, on what happens in the next stage of the war. I mean, the problem is, you know, anything that even gets close to the status quo ante, which would be, you know, in reality, a terrible military defeat for Vladimir Putin, given all his original war aims, is a political victory for him because of the way he can spin it. And, you know, he's still there um, as a sort of malignant presence squatting across Russia. Um, and so, yeah, there's a lot of ruin in the country, a long, slow grind, and at the risk of sounding incredibly pessimistic, uh, you know, a, a, a lot of a, a residual a sort of fatalistic patience in among Russian people to just put up with very, very bad government for a very long time, unfortunately. I wish I had something more optimistic to say about that, but that certainly that's what my Russian friends tell me as well. Yeah, they are not optimistic. Well, I wish we could end on a more optimistic note, but but that's the reality. So thank you so much for uh, to both Raphael and Francesca for joining us. Uh, if you enjoyed this podcast, and do read Raphael's piece, which is in the current issue of Prospect, which is going to be on there for another 10 days or so before the next edition arrives, or find him uh, on the Prospect website. If you've enjoyed this, you might want to try Prospect Lives, which is a monthly series of audio diary entries from our family of seven writers, including the actor Sheila Hancock, the uh, librettist and poet uh, Annis Goodman, on being a parish priest and the former England cricket captain, Mike Reilly. Um, they can make you laugh, they can make you think, uh, they may even make you cry, but they'll definitely give you a snapshot of seven lives and very different to yours, probably. Uh, so just search Prospect Lives where you get your podcasts or follow the link in the show notes of this episode. Uh, again, thank you, Raphael. Thank you, Francesca. Thank you for listening. Goodbye and see you next time. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50 luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.